Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. Welcome to season four of Mostly Books Meets. We're really excited. We've got loads of amazing authors lined up for you and we can't wait to get the episodes out to you. To kick off, for the first time in the history of Mostly Books Meets, we have a guest joining us for a second time. This week I'm talking to Sunday Times best-selling author Beth Morey. Beth first joined us as a guest this time last year, talking about her debut novel Saving Missy. Fast forward a year, a lot has changed. We're still dealing with the effects of COVID, but we're no longer in full lockdown as we were when Beth and I first caught up. And whilst we're still talking books, we're here today to chat about Beth's brand new book, Emma Me, which is published today, the 3rd of February. Beth, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. I feel honoured to be on twice. It's so exciting to have you back. When I was contacted to ask whether or not you'd be able to come back on again, I was like, oh, goodness, that's different. Got to think about how to do that. But I'm so chuffed. I feel like what's going to happen now is we need to have like an annual catch up every year. Yeah, yeah, Um, I'm up for that. (laughs) Because the year before last, we had the pudding night just before lockdown. Oh, that was lovely. It's so good. And then obviously last year you came on when we were in the middle of the horrible, horrible January, February, March, April lockdown, which was just, I think, the worst of the lot. The worst of the lot, the worst Mm. lockdowns. The best one was the November one, December one, where the schools stayed open. That was my favourite lockdown. But the January lockdown last year was the worst. It was utterly miserable, wasn't it? It was the combination of the fact that it was another lockdown, which we all kind of didn't want anyway, but it was dark, it was cold, it was miserable. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just the fact that all of us had thought it wasn't going to happen and then it happened all over again. And it was the depression after Christmas as well is always a bit depressing. You're kind of like, oh, there's nothing to look forward to and I'm homeschooling. It was really a very big low point, I think. But we're not there anymore. So we're back very exciting so because we've already kind of been through your path done the normal spiel that we do as part of most of its meets and if anyone wants to listen to that they should listen to best first episode because it was a lot of fun we chatted a lot it was great um so i thought we'd do something a bit different today so we've already covered your background but we haven't talked about obviously what you've done this last year and this last year you've clearly been quite busy when we last chatted it was in lockdown and obviously it feels like it was quite a long time ago as we talked about then but living Life during lockdown was one thing, but kind of reflecting on it is another. What are your main memories of this time last year? I ate and drank an awful lot. That's my main... I mean, I did put on quite a lot of weight. Um, It's because, like, what else was there to do? I just remember one of the first things that I bought was lots of garlic bread, which I never allow myself to eat. But I was like, I'm so depressed. I've got to have some garlic bread. And I was having nightly cocktails as like little pick-me-ups. I mean, it was just dreadful. Um, I've cut out most of those things now, but I was really indulging in comfort food, which was quite a mistake. I love the fact that you say I've cut out most of them now, you know, the occasional evening cocktails, still just fine, thank you very much. (laughs) I had some garlic bread last night. (laughs) Yes, the garlic bread. (laughs) Um, So mostly, yeah, just eating my way through it and then 
obviously the homeschooling was such a major part because we've got two young children. And I remember on the first day of lockdown, just feeling like, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. No, I just can't get through it. And it was something like 9.38am and I, I, it was just... But then we got into a rhythm in the end. And what was different this time was we had more support on Google Classroom. So mm-hmm. we had a bit more of a structure to the day. And what really helped was rather than writing a book from scratch, I was editing M and Me. And I don't think I could have written from scratch under those circumstances. I think it was very useful that I was just, we say just editing, editing is really hard, but it's not quite the same. You don't have to dredge up something from nothing. And I think that really helped. Yeah, I, I've spoken to a lot of people, obviously, uh, about the impact of COVID on life in general. And the, the consistent message from everyone, well, from the majority of people, is that the creativity aspect just really kind of dipped. A lot of people that yeah. just had never really had that problem before suddenly found that their bank of ideas disappeared. It's I think true. the kind of the concept of like external influences, external inspiration, we never really considered that, I don't think, until suddenly we all had it taken away from us. I think that's true. And I noticed it to a, it was a kind of weird mix. So I was constantly distracted by the news and my concentration was shot. So I could only sort of do little bursts of things. But at the same time, there was a bit of me that felt quite creative because I was so desperate to get out and do things that the only way out was in my head. So my husband and I used to swap with the homeschooling. And whenever I came up here to write, there would be a supercharged element to it because I was so desperate to do something that wasn't, well, getting garlic bread out the freezer. <laughs> so when did the idea of M and Me, so we should say M and Me is your new book. It's out yes. on the third. Of, it's out today. It's out today. Um, <laughs> obviously recording this in advance. Where did the idea of this book come from? I, I just love this book. We'll, we'll come into the details of what it's all about shortly. But where did the idea come from? And when did you start putting pen to paper for it? Well, I think like a lot of books, there was no one moment or one crystallization of an idea. It evolved quite slowly. And I suppose there were two principal things. One that I was really interested in education and how that can be used as an opportunity, a a kind of a social levitator that you can go from one place to another. And education is a huge way of doing that. So I had that in my mind as a vague theme. But then there was this viral clip online a few years ago, which was like they staged a running race with young people and they lined them all up. And then the guy who was organizing the race ask people to step forward if they fulfilled certain criteria. So like if their parents were still together, if they had a father figure in their lives, if they'd never gone hungry, if they had a private education, they were allowed to step forward according to how many privileges they'd been accorded in life. And then they had to run the race for money. And obviously the people who had those privileges were more likely to win. And I mean, it was a bit schmaltzy really, but it was one of those indicators of how your life circumstances can hold you back. And I was interested in telling the story of someone who starts out okay, she's got all the things in place, but then she gradually gets these barriers that pull her back. So she's derailed, really. And it's how she gets her life back on track. And it evolved from that idea. Oh, I'm gonna have to look that clip up. That sounds amazing. Because what a great visualisation of something that I guess we're all aware of. And I think you do it really well with the book, because certainly right at the beginning, you really feel kind of the depths of despair of your main character. She really does feel like, you know, she's really not worth anything, doesn't mm. she? And then as you, you get into the story, you find out more about her and realise that actually when she was younger, she had loads of ambition and she had loads of potential, which then just didn't come to fruition. 
So you feel for her so much right at the beginning of the book. Yeah, that's what I wanted. But I mean, she's very ground down at the beginning of the book. But I kind of also wanted a sort of that the spark hadn't been entirely extinguished. It was still there and it just needed something to kickstart her. So it's a mix of her own agency and then people she meets who help her. Which is a common theme with Saving Missy, of course, because mm. that was a big thing that I absolutely loved about Saving Missy, the impact of people that you just happen across on your life and, and what that then does to you. Well, I think that's quite a challenge of writing your second novel. And it's certainly one that I felt was such a steep learning curve that you're trying to do something quite different. And at the same time, keep it the same. Because, like, I wouldn't have written a dystopian thriller for my second novel because <laughs> that would have confused people. Um, but you're trying to offer something new so they don't think, oh, I'm reading the same book again. But at the same time, give them familiar elements that are sort of maybe part of your brand. And that's a really difficult path to tread. I find writing the second book a lot harder than writing the first. I'm not surprised because I think, you know, when you're writing your first book, you're kind of doing it in your own space, aren't you? There's no expectation. Mm. Yeah. The only pressure that's on it really is yourself, putting yourself under that pressure and, and your ambition. But as soon as you've gone out, and obviously Saving Missy was such a huge success, it's always going to be difficult to follow that. But I think you've done it really well. I think I think MME is excellent. I think it will really appeal to the market that Saving Missy did and, and will certainly be, be, be pushing it into the hands of our customers for sure. Oh, thank you. For a minute, let's step away from your book. We'll come back to it in a bit. But let's talk about books in general over the last year because... In preparation for our chat today, normally I'd come out to you and I'd say, tell me about the first book you ever read. Tell me about the book that changed your life. And this time I was like, well, actually, just tell me about what you've done in the last year. And I was astounded when you sent it through because you sent me through a massive list of books. (laughs) First of all, extremely well organised. Are you like a book journaler? No. And the reason that I did this is because I want to become one. It's not difficult to record what you've read, and yet I never bother. And then people say to me, oh, what's the last good book you read? I think I can't name a book I've read. It's just (laughs) impossible. My brain just goes blank. So when we were talking about doing it this way, I thought, listen, right, I've got to do this. I've got to actually work out what I've read this year, because I know I've read something. And um, I had to go back through my Twitter feed and (laughs) notes that I'd made in random places and look on my shelves thinking, did I read that this year? And it took a bit of a while, but I was really glad I did it because firstly, I've read way more books than I thought I had. What is it? It's sort of 32? 32. 32, And you're in the middle of another one, aren't you? So Yes. Yes. Which isn't bad, I think, because I don't think of myself as a prolific reader. And yet there's a lot here. So I was really pleased. And it made me think from now on, I'm going to be a book chronicler. I'm going to write down everything so that I've always got this list. It's really helpful. I've never done this. And a couple of my colleagues do. And I really should, given what I do for a living. Um, <laughs> bit of an occupational hazard when you forget which books you've read. I also have a really bad habit of forgetting the names of the books and the authors, yes. which is really terrible when you're trying to sell them to people. And there's so many lovely book journals as well that you can get. So I feel like it's it, it's a good thing. Or just on an Excel spreadsheet. which Yeah, is just put it on your phone. I'm, I'm really going to do this. I've got to. Well, let's dig into it. Let's dig into your books. You've got, like I say, you've got a whole list. We're not going to go through all of them, but let's start off with the first one on the list because it's a fantastic book that a lot of people know about, but I'd love to know what you think about it. So it's Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell. Obviously, extremely well received in the trade. It won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020. Mm. Tell me what you think about that. And for for anyone who hasn't actually read it, maybe it's worth doing a little bit of an elevator pitch about it. (laughs) Well, I wonder if I did mention this on the podcast last year because I read it at the beginning, right? It was the first book. I read of the year, I think, because I remember thinking, well, that's slightly annoying that you're not going to be able to top that. I've read my best book of the year 
right at the beginning of the year and I felt a bit disappointed in a way um (laughs) and in the end there were plenty of others that were contenders too but it was right up there and I approached it slightly resentfully because it had so many beautiful exclusive copies in Waterstones and people were raving about it so much there was part of me that was like well can it be that good um (laughs) and then I read it and I was like oh god it's that good and more good (laughs) that's that's how I describe it as a writer more good (laughs) Um, it's so beautifully lyrical and it is literary but not in a way that is difficult to comprehend or that goes over your head it's just so accessible as well and I just loved Agnes she's just so gripping and I love the fact that Shakespeare's a bit of an (laughs) arse he's kind of a bit of an afterthought isn't he yeah he's not part of it I love that it's all Agnes and the twin switch bit not to give any spoilers away but just broke my heart and I love the supernatural element. I really like that woven through and just everything about it. Um, I stayed up really late to finish it because I just had to read the end and I just had this lump in my throat the whole time. And the the ending is so redemptive. And then Shakespeare stops being an ass. <laughs> um, the end. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know why The Guardian doesn't ask me to do reviews. <laughs> Shakespeare stops being an ass. You just see that on the front of the next version. It's, yes. It's <laughs> Have you read many of Maggie O'Farrell's books? Oh, I wonder if I didn't put it on the list. I also read I Am, I Am, I Am this year. There's oh, another I was one. going to ask you about I Am, I Am. And I'm, oh my goodness, I'm so pleased. And you read that this year. Yes. What do you think about that? Oh my God, it's jaw-dropping. The Jimmy Savile story. That's the one I always pick oh up. Oh my God. So for anyone that doesn't know what I'm, I'm, I'm is, it's basically 17 brushes with death that Maggie O'Farrell has had, which is quite terrifying Um, and it sounds like a really horribly depressing book but it's just not at all is it no it's it's life affirming I guess but it is quite shocking as well some of the you know one of the first stories the hiking story is really really shocking and proper catch your breath stuff yeah that is the first one isn't it and it catches your um attention straight away so it's Mm. it's a story about when she was 16 18 years old something like that yeah and and she's walking in the hills in Scotland and comes across some man with some binoculars and and he seems a bit strange. Yeah. And then her gut reaction was right because he's well, a, wrong. a few days later he attacked and killed somebody. So yeah. she just kind of dodged the bullet there, didn't she? Yeah. And it's quite an intense reading experience that. But again, she's just got this ability to draw you in so completely. Yeah, I could not put that book down. And it's one that I always have in, in, in my shop because I just want people to read it. In fact, when that was published, Maggie came into our shop I don't get starstruck very often, but with Maggie mm-hmm. O'Farrell, I really was. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like a random Tuesday morning or something. She just popped into sign stocks. So it wasn't a public appearance. It was just literally to say hello. And I remember talking to her and just saying, what are you up to for the rest of the week? And she was like, well, I'm doing this. I'm, doing I'm going to be on Women's Hour later this week. I was like, yeah, sure. Same week as mine. Exactly the same. But <laughs> she's a super. But she was just so down to earth. But because she's got such a distinctive look, mm. it was just really strange. I was like, I can't believe she's in my shop. Yeah, she's so got great strange. hair. Yeah, she's got great hair. Really great hair. She's got great hair. So you need to add that to your list. Yes, it's not on that. I'm going to add it. But the trouble is I can't. I, I did this roughly in order. Oh, no, it's not really in order looking at it. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, that's fine. You can just put it on the end then. So I'm, right. I'm adding it in. Right now, as we yeah. speak. So I don't forget. <laughs> so there's probably about 50 more that I haven't made a note of. <laughs> so actually, you might, have, you might have read 100 books this year. Yeah. So you read Hamnet, like you say, before we chatted last time. I think so, it was. So you, you've done these kind of chronologically. Did you find that during the lockdown, the beginning of last year, 
you were able to read or did this homeschooling and the general depression and garlic bread eating get in the way of that? I think during that lockdown between January and March so uh Hamlet would have been before lockdown started like sort of the first few days of January probably and I reckon between January and March I read hardly anything at all because I would have been homeschooling in the morning in the afternoon I would have been editing and in the evening I would have been getting the garlic bread out and just chuffing <laughs> so I doubt that I read very much at all in that time. So do you remember when you read Small Pleasures by Claire Chambers? I think I probably read it in the spring after lockdown had finished. When did it come out? I can't remember. I certainly read it in hardback because I remember going to my local bookshop book bar and buying it as a treat. And I read it very soon after I bought it. So I must have bought it quite soon after it came out. Did you know anything about it before you read it? Or was it one of those ones that you just happened, the bookshop made it look so beautiful that you had to buy it? No, I went into the bookshop knowing that that's what I wanted to buy. And I bought two others, just browsy, browsy. But I wanted to buy that one. I must have seen stuff on Twitter about how good it was. And it would be another one where I'd approach it going, well, it can't be that good. And then it (laughs) is. (laughs) Because I do remember thinking, right, come on then, come on then impressed me and I really was incredibly impressed it's you, you've got a bit of a theme when I was looking at a list I was like there's quite a few on here that have been shortlisted for or won you know the women's prize just at the beginning of the list and is that something that you kind of actively look for is it just happened to be the case that these were books that were being you know kind of chatted about um probably because either I felt like I ought to be up on it or because often and it's slightly galling often people are right when they say books are good you know my whole thing and well it can't be um it turns out the people pretty much know what they're talking about and if you hear it enough said that something is good it is good but my happiest list is one that is really eclectic yeah i can't bear the idea of only reading you know books on prize lists and some of my best reads are ones that I discover myself or that I'm thinking, oh, no one else is reading that. It's just me. So it's a mix. I would hope it's a mix anyway. But, I, you know, I like to keep on top of things, even if I don't read something. Maybe it might not appeal to me or I just don't get around to it. But I try and be aware of stuff that's out there and, and what people are saying about it. So at least I'm kind of familiar with it, even if I haven't read it. Yeah, obviously, it's a big part of what we have to do in the shop. I've seen a real trend with this in the last few years, though. When I first I took over Mostly Books in 2017, and whilst prizes were kind of there, and obviously the Booker Prize had quite an impact on sales, but a lot of the others didn't. But I've really noticed, particularly the Women's Prize for Fiction, has really come through. I mean, there's been such amazing winners there with Hamnet, and obviously, there was, the, you know, my sister, the serial killer. And there was, you know, there were a couple of really, Camilla Shamsi, I think, was one as well. So I don't think I don't think my sister serial killer won, but it was shortlisted. And Camilla Shamsi Home Fire was also another great book. And those just seem to be continuously selling for us even now, you know, some years later. Yes. And there are two types, aren't there? Because like Hamnet was already fantastically successful and everyone was buying it. It sort of didn't need the prize because everyone knew. Whereas there have been some in the past, like I'm thinking Milkman by Anna Burns, that when that one, nobody had read it, sold like something like 5,000 copies, but then they had to do a massive print run to catch up with that. And sometimes that's really nice to see because you think, right, this unsung heroine of the book world has finally got her recognition, which is nice. I like it when prizes do that. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Uh, But what you were saying as well about um, not really believing... (laughs) books would be that good you know my one of those was Shuggy Bane jealousy I was I was like well it's won the booker and I'm sure it's fine but I don't think I'm gonna read it 
And then everyone was saying, you know, how fabulous it was. And then I finally read it and I was like, oh my God, I should have read this like a year ago. So my husband's just read that and was just like, this is incredible. It's just wonderful. It's everything. And I can't read it because the cover makes me cry. You know, the one of the mother and the boy in bed, That because there's a few different covers, but that yeah. one, I can't bear the cover. I just, it just chokes me up so badly that I can't go there. And, and I feel really pathetic about it because, you know, cutting out overly emotional, you know, hard hitting books because you just can't cope with the emotions is a bit pathetic, I think. But I just can't. I don't think I could do it. No, I think, it's, I think you definitely have to be in the right mindset for that book, for sure. And it isn't an easy read. So I can understand that completely. I've, I've just started the proof of his upcoming book and it is. Oh, Young Mungo. Again. Yeah, so good. So let's get back to your list. Um, so Small Pleasures by Claire Chambers, you absolutely loved. The next one that I want to talk about is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, because I just think that is a fantastic book. I'm completely leading your comments here, aren't I? I'm like, I'm not going to give you the opportunity to ever say, oh, I didn't really like it. So I'm like, this is great. I'm going to say I hated it. <laughs> no, I can see it's emboldened on my list, which means it was a favourite. <laughs> Um, Old italic. It's a great book. And just to go back to Small Pleasures in comparison, one of the things about Small Pleasures is the thing that happens at the ending. And I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I am annoyed with her about what she does at the end of the book. And I had to go back to the beginning of the book and then flip through a bit and think, right, okay, what do I think happened? And I'm not happy about the conclusions that I drew. (laughs) (laughs) She was very cruel to me. So I just wanted to say that because the thing about The Vanishing Half is I think there is no bit of me that doesn't think that everything that she did in that book was right. Mm -hmm. Every decision she made, the way that everything's done is so perfectly judged. And it's another one. And all those, Britt Bennett, Claire Chambers and Maggie O'Farrell have this ability that you read it like a thriller. You are so totally gripped and yet that's not really what it is at all. But that's how you read it. And I was so desperate for the twins to, find each other and get back together I was like when is it gonna happen when is it gonna happen and that's what kept me that powered me through the entire book Mm. yeah that kind of book where you literally can't do anything apart from just sit and read it I just love them yeah love them yeah and it's a really minor thing but this book also is one of the most beautiful books I think that was published in the last couple of years I just think the cover's phenomenal and it just makes it makes everyone want to pick it up yes the, um, the brightly colored and that's not minor either sometimes I, I I never really noticed it before I got into publishing myself but now I'm obsessed with how covers look and if one is a particularly good one you're like oh that's clever there's one that everyone's going on about on Twitter at the moment called The Tides and I can't remember who wrote it but the cover of it looks like layers of ripped paper but then if if you look at it in a different way it becomes like a wave slapping the shore and it's so incredibly clever and simple and beautiful I just think it's a real art form good covers and The Vanishing Half was really good it really really is a couple of years ago we were invited to Harper Collins, the publisher just to have a bit of a chat about some upcoming titles and also just chat about some upcoming events and one of the things they did is they brought in one of the lead book cover designers in to chat to us and I'd never thought about the process until then like you it, only mm. once I got into book selling did I start to think about the power of the book I mean obviously the 
don't judge a book by its cover is is always been in my head but suddenly you realize just how important it is to have something that really does look good because it 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 can make or break a book yes but um hearing this woman talk about how the covers evolve and she was pointing certain things out that we we were talking about I think it was one of the it was an historical fiction book I can't which one it was but it was just things like there was you know on the paperback some things have been reduced in size slightly to be able to fit in different texts and it's just stuff you would never have picked up on but as soon as she said it, you realised there was mm. thought behind every single little thing. It was so interesting. I think I know the person you mean, because I think I've spoken to her as well. And she's very impressive. And she talked to me about the cover of Eleanor Oliphant and how that evolved and how they wanted it to be a certain way. And I remember one of the things she said about why it's so good is you can see it from afar across a bookshop and you would know exactly what it was from afar. So it's a kind of an impressionist kind of thing you can Mm -hmm. catch a glimpse of it from afar and obviously that's an iconic cover yeah and it really did strike me how important that was Mm -hmm. so when I've been going through your list what I liked about it is it wasn't all kind of the same sort of thing. So it wasn't all fiction. It wasn't all non-fic. But you do have a couple of cookbooks in there, which I love. I love reading cookbooks. Yeah, I love cookbooks as well. And one of them is from The Veg Patch by Kathy Slack. And I was so pleased to see this on your list because I mentioned to you just before we started recording, since we last caught up, I've bought another shop. So I now have two bookshops. Um, and the other bookshop was called The Borzoi Bookshop in Still on the World. And Kathy is a real friend of, of our shop over there. Of course, she's round there, isn't she? Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. And she's um, she's done a couple of events with us and she's just lovely and her food is amazing. So do you know, Cathy, or what's your link to this book? Yeah, so Cathy's a friend of mine and I actually tried out a couple of her recipes early on and gave oh, her really? feedback, which was so much fun. So when she became a sort of professional food writer and cook, she used to try out recipes on us. And um, my God, it was like you'd never eaten food before. And all of a sudden, you you know, it was just in this different league. So I've always very much admired her as as a cook, as a a host of me. Um, (laughs) So she also tried out some of the recipes from the book on us. And there was this particular cake that she made when she was doing the shoot of the book. And it was sage and pumpkin, which is a really weird mix. I mean, it was just nectar. It it was ambrosial. I couldn't believe (laughs) it. And so when the book came out, obviously I wanted to buy a copy and then I wanted to try out recipes from it. But also I really like the prose in her book. It's really beautifully written. The description of it, the kind of lifestyle bit of it, just the beauty of the vegetables and the shots of her garden are so lovely. And the great food writers, like I always love reading Nigella's cookbooks because her style is so unique. It's so sort of loquacious and over the top, but that's what you want it to be. Yeah. And I find it so comforting. Another on my list is the new Stanley Tucci, Taste. I mean, I am a bit of a foodie. Well, I'm greedy. That's basically it. And I just love reading people writing about food and what it means to them. And so things like that, just I find the ultimate comfort. And then, you know, I'll try out the recipes as well. Taste in particular was one of those books because that's a really nice mix, isn't it? Of him chatting about yes. things and also the Memoir. recipes. Mm. That was really popular at Christmas. But the Kathy Slap book, we just can't keep it in the shop at the Borzoi. It just sells and sells. Oh, that's good to know. It's well worth a buy. Yeah, it really is. And I think the photos within it as well just make you want to eat everything yes. in, in the book. Well, it's also very timely. I mean, I went vegetarian this year. or Not totally vegetarian, but sort of 95%. And um, for me, it was quite inspirational because it reminded me that meat doesn't have to be the main event in a dish. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like it's of the moment, that kind of book. Yeah, I totally agree. Funnily enough, we were talking about that the other day. We were doing a window display 
you know, because it's this time of year. So you're finding the healthy books, you're the ones about good, healthy eating and about running and everything you need to start doing and all the stuff you need to stop doing, you can just ignore. But when I was looking at the cookbooks, like, I mean, it's probably not going to be a surprise to anyone, but I said it was really, really obvious that all of the kind of the healthy eating cookbooks were vegetable based this year. So often you'll have some that, are, you know, have got meat dishes in, but this year it was a tough to find one. So there's definitely a real shift across. I mean, that's not new news. No, but I'm always late to join the party and a lot of my friends are turning vegetarian. It's just more of a regular thing now. And meat is just feeling increasingly just a bit irrelevant. Mm, Um, I don't particularly miss it. Although, as I say, I wouldn't say, you know, I never eat it. It's just gone into the background now. Yeah, yeah. I want to come on to another book that's on your list because I feel like I've said this for every book, but I really, really, really want to talk about this book. This Much is True by Miriam Margulies. So this book, when it first came out, I mean, obviously, everyone that knows Miriam knows that the book is probably going to be slightly bonkers. But did you have any idea that it was going to be as bonkers as as it actually was? Well, yes, because I've seen her on Graham Norton. How much of it is true? Is any of it true? I don't know. I really want it all to be true. I really want it all to be true. Well, I don't know. I'd I'd love to hear some comeback from some of the people featured. You know, like, actually, it wasn't like that at all. She's a loon. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know. But all I can say is it was one of the most entertaining reads I'd read in a long time, even though occasionally my jaw was on the floor. And I was like, you know, even if that is true, how could you put it in this? (laughs) I think she's just at that point in her life where she's like, I really don't care. No. Everyone can know. I think pretty much her whole life was <laughs> has been like that though, hasn't it? That's true. That's true. The number, yes, it's uh, eye-opening, <laughs> but really great fun. Yeah. I mean, there was a really strong set of biographies that came out this the, the last quarter of last year I mean some amazing ones obviously that one did really well the Bob Mortimer one did really well the Dave Grohl um just books that really made people kind of get into the nitty-gritty of people's lives and the thing is with Miriam Margulies I mean obviously she's a big name and you've seen everyone knows her from all the things she's in and obviously like you say the Graham Norton show she's legendary on it but I'd never really considered like what she did day to day. And it was just oh, fascinating. I knew about her voiceover thing. I knew that she was the Cabaret's Caramel Bunny and, and stuff like that. I had no idea. So I did know about that. And I knew that, you know, she had a very illustrious stage and, and film career. I think what surprised me about that book, and she says it early on and she's right. She said, I don't want this just to be dirty talk. And there are a couple of moments in it that are really poignant and thoughtful. And, you know, there's stuff about her mum and dad, which I felt, you know, very heartbroken for her about stuff Mm -hmm. that's happened with her mum and dad, because they were such a tight unit, but there was flaws there and she acknowledged them. So I do think it's important to give her credit that, right, there's a lot of talk about sucking off, but equally it's balanced by some real thought and fierce politics and you know some interesting stuff as well it's not lightweight by any means no not at all it's interesting because a lot of you know her child she she moved to Oxford when she was young as a result of Mm. the war it's obviously just down the road from where we are and when I drive in Oxford now and I drive along the road that I know she had her house in the thought really sticks in my head because she talks about the fact that she had the house and then she sold it thinking she was selling it to somebody who was going to be living in it but in fact they knocked it down and built I think flats or something on Mm. top of it and she wishes she hadn't sold now yeah also, she's so funny about money because she tells you <laughs> how much she got for things, which is such it, a taboo for most people, but she doesn't care. No, exactly. But I, I was driving along thinking, goodness, I wonder where it was. And just, you know, she visualises things really well for yes. the reader. 
And the photos that obviously those kind of books have these glossy photos at various points. And I absolutely poured over them so much more. When I'd read the passages, I was kind of flipping to the photos to see in the flesh what they looked like and how it was. Yeah, such a great book. So in the list, I didn't ask you to do this, but I'm glad you did it. You actually kind of put a book of the year, your favourite book of the year, which is quite yes. quite a thing to do given, I mean, we've barely touched on your list. And I will I will make sure I include the full list in the notes of our podcast because there's, there's some brilliant ones in there. I mean, other ones you've talked about. It, like I say, it's a real range. You've got like a couple of Lee Childs, I love Lee Childs books. Lovely Child. Magpie by Elizabeth Day, which is yep. just fantastic one of the it, that's it was one of the buzz books wasn't it mm-hmm. everyone yes. talking about it and I wasn't sure whether it would live up to the expectations did you think it did well I guess the twist is that a bad thing I don't know I mean sometimes it's fine to guess the twist I, I mean I felt quite satisfied I I'm had. impressed you guessed the twist I didn't get anywhere near it <laughs> yeah no I, I did get that quite early on but I did, it didn't ruin my enjoyment of the book so then I don't know that it matters that I guessed it. No. Well, I said I didn't get any near it. I knew it was kind of heading that way, but I didn't get it. it was quite how it was, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it is a thriller. It read like that as well. And I mean, I gobbled it up. Yeah, devoured it. Let's talk about the one that you said is your book of the year then. So The Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. Tell us about that. Yes. I'm just going to go there with having a best book because it blew me away. And it also was one of those ones that I felt like a bit I'd found myself because I'd just seen a couple of people recommend it. Oh, and she put on Twitter that somebody had sort of slagged her off and said it was Bridget Jones' The Plague Years (laughs) and that she was trying to reclaim that as a compliment. And I was like, my God, it's the blurb of the century. That's amazing. Um, If they were trying to slag her off, they didn't succeed because it it really drew me in. And I thought, oh, that sounds fun. I've got a bit of an apocalyptic vein. You know, one of my favourite books of all time is The Girl with All the Gifts by Mike Carey. And um, so I do like have a thing for apocalypse scenarios. But in a way, the apocalypse scenarios in this is sort of a means to an end. So trying to summarise it without giving too many spoilers, it's a really bad pandemic. Like COVID is just a gentle walk in the park compared to the pandemic in last one say, at the party. Just before you carry on, when I saw that it was about um, a pandemic, you know, people not surviving a pandemic, I was like, it's dark. It's pitch dark. It's, <laughs> it's gruesome and shocking and visceral. And I couldn't believe it. And it's really funny. <laughs> It's hilarious because it's so flippant and I love flippancy. Just I'm just drawn to flippancy. Flippant about serious things, that really does it for me, you know. So it's like sort of Mike Carey Girl with All of the Gifts meets Nancy Mitford and <laughs> you can't believe what's happening. She just makes the worst possible things happen and then her character rise above it. And as I say, the terrible disease that destroys humanity is sort of not really the point of it. It's more about what her protagonist does with that situation and how she gets on with life as like possibly the sole survivor of humanity. And it's outrageous and hilarious and always surprising. And as I said, really brutal. But I had been looking for a long time for a book that I could read in one sitting. I wanted to read a book in a day. I haven't done it in years. And I doubted my ability to do that. But it felt important to see if I could still do it. And I needed the right book to do it with. And I picked it up from my bookshop in the morning and I finished it at about half 11 that night. And I just read in a frenzy for the day. 
And I defy anyone really not to read it like that. That's how it should be read. And afterwards, I just felt completely winded, but really supercharged with the idea of somebody being able to do that. And so partly because she's a debut author, so it's such an impressive achievement, and partly because, you know, it's not one of the ones that's piled high on tables and waterstones. It bloody should be, but Mm -hmm. it isn't. That combination came together and I just think, yeah, that's the one for me. That's the one of the year. I haven't read it. Your description of it makes me want to read it. So it came out in February last year and it's coming out in paperback on the 17th of February this year. So yes, we'll make sure that it's... um... I mean, you'd have to warn your customers. It's not for the faint-hearted. I recommended it to a friend and she was really shocked. I think she enjoyed it, but she was like, I don't don't understand what you've given me here. So you have to be prepared (laughs) for the roller coaster. It might be a wild card for our um, book club. That might yeah. be quite fun. <laughs> so we touched on your book earlier on, Emmy, and we, we talked about kind of the main character and, and a couple of other things. But let's just talk a little bit more about it because that's what I want people to know about. So with your writing, do you plan stuff out or does it kind of evolve as, as you're going through the story? Like, did this character kind of become a living being to you? Yes. Missy, I always knew her inside out. And Delphine was much more of a guarded kind of presence. Missy would go for a drink with me and Delphine wouldn't. And in a way, I guess she's kind of more interesting for it because I had to really hack away at her because she has got this sort of closed off quality. And I sort of built it up in layers much more because she's a quieter figure. Like Missy initially is quite quiet, but, you know, she's she kind of blossoms. Whereas Delphine was a bit more resistant. But I think I learned much more writing Em and Me than I did writing Saving Missy for all the reasons we've already discussed. And I felt like also I was working out what kind of writer I am because, you know, maybe I would have done this completely differently. But the way that I tend to do it is I think a lot about character and vague things that I want to happen and themes. And I also think about mood, like I sort of think my way into a mood of the mood I'm in, of the mood I want my reader to be in. And then once I've thought about those things, I write it without thinking at all. I literally don't think, don't write notes. I just write it really, really really fast without thinking. And then once I've got to the end of that, I put it to one side. And then when I come back to it, I really think about it. Right, what have I got? What's wrong? What doesn't work? What doesn't read right? Where's the rhythm? Are the plot points working? And then I start the real thinking and rewriting. So that's so interesting. It's almost like your brain is just like coming out onto the page initially. Yes. It's completely instinctive. And I find that you get interesting things happen if you do it that way. If you don't think too much, if I plot too much, I get a kind of robotic quality to yeah. hitting those points. And I need, sometimes the characters just tell me where it's going to go and it feels more organic that way than if I've decided in advance. Some things you can't decide in advance. You need to let them show you the way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'm writing my third book at the moment and I've just finished the brain dump without thinking and now I'm taking stock. And actually, that's the really hard bit. The actual thinking is really hard. Well, that's interesting timing, isn't it? Because obviously what's happening now is the MME is just about to be out there for everyone to read and you're, you're kind of now firmly into your next book. So this time for this book, you're actually going to be able to go and see people, which will be lovely. I really hope so. It would be so nice. It was very hard to launch a paperback in lockdown with the bookshops closed because all my events were online and just the bookshops were closed. I just cannot stress enough how awful that is personally and how awful that is professionally that us debut authors 
not established or famous, people aren't going to just pick you up in that way. You need to stumble across new people and just open it and go, this looks interesting. And you can't do that online. You just can't. I mean, I'm sure people do, but it just doesn't happen in the same way. And I don't want to go into figures, but if you looked at my sales before the bookshops opened and then when the bookshops opened, oh my God, it was simultaneously the happiest and the saddest I've ever been because it was like, oh, I'm so happy it's picked up. But like all those weeks I missed out on, it was so sad. So it would be absolutely lovely to launch a book when the bookshops are open and I can go into them and meet people. It's happening. It's happening. I'm, I'm not counting any chickens. You know, a new variant could come out any moment oh god don't well okay we're hoping we're hoping it's happening yes well we'll certainly have it um we'll have it in both my shops and i i will be pushing it into hands of anyone who will listen to me because this is this is my favorite <laughs> genre i think i said that to you before i love books that are well written but kind of make you think and make you feel good and that's exactly what you do with your books you the characters are just fantastic and and it makes you want to find out more i said i was writing kind of my notes i always do this when i'm chatting to people about what i thought think about the books and and the thing i said about this one is your characters are immediately relatable like you, you know that person you can see that person who started out in life and then didn't kind of follow her path in the way that she thought she was going to and you really rooting for them and the way that you write just makes me want to sit and read more so oh thank you we will we will make sure lots of people read it <laughs> yes please just before we go last time we caught up one of my questions I ask everyone is the book that changed their life and your book was which witch oh yes <laughs> Do you think any of the books you've read this year have had kind of a significant impact on your life or do you think it's mostly just been enjoying reading for the sake of reading? Well, the one that I mentioned last one at the party, I like the extremity of it, like the daringness of it. And I think it might push me to try and be a bit more daring, a bit more expansive, a bit more crazy in that sense from a writing point of view. And I guess it was more all of them, you know, having written this list, because I didn't think of myself as a particularly prolific reader, I think of myself as not very good at it. And what I liked about this list was I thought, oh, I'm quite good at it. I do read lots of books and I do like lots of books. Well done me. (laughs) All of them made me feel like I am a proper reader. And that was a really nice feeling. Gold star. Yes. Well done me. A plus. (laughs) What a lovely way to end. Let's leave it there. It's been so lovely chatting to you today. And this is the first time we've done the podcast in a way that doesn't follow the normal structure. And I've absolutely loved it. So I must be more wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Best of luck with the publication of Emmy. It is fantastic. It deserves to do extremely well. And thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very honoured. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.